Hi, my name is Gunnar Froh and I'm your host on the Wonder Mobility Podcast. Welcome back to the Wonder Mobility Podcast. Today I'm with Jonas Seifert. Welcome, Jonas. Hello, Gunnar. It's a big pleasure to have you here. You're an absolute expert in all things new mobility. Some background about you first before we get started. You're currently a director at Strategy End, basically in consulting, leading the topics around automotive and mobility with Strategy End. And previously, you were also a founder yourself. Why did you change perspectives and are now working from a more top-down perspective on the topic? Well, I mean, first of all, I'm also super excited being here with you. Uh, I remember the times 10, 10, 15 years ago when we first talked about the concept of podcasts and I was always thinking about I need to produce a podcast myself and never found the time. So I'm I'm really happy to I'll be there with you and have the opportunity to actually produce one session with you. And uh, coming to to your question, during my times as uh, as a founder with a with a, a career network, but speaker net in 10, 000, uh, 2005 and six, I realized that I want to learn also insights from other industries and, and work with people who have more experience than than myself and the founding team. And that's why I moved into consulting originally with the idea to, as as many of the consultants I believe, to gain a uh, consultant toolkit. Um, understand some of the fundamentals on how economics and business work and how to work with leaders to change organizations. And um, over the time, I enjoyed actually working there quite a bit because my topic is very much about driving innovation in a corporate environment and helping traditional companies to set up new business units, set up corporate ventures. So over the years, I had the opportunities to Build quite a few different new ventures, and uh, I enjoy very much the, the broad perspective because when you move from one venture to the other, from one industry to the other, you see different patterns and also learnings which you can convey and transfer from one idea to the other. And that's what really drives me still today towards, particular, the market of mobility and the the big challenges in this transforming ecosystem. We've done a number of sessions together by now in yeah, different conferences. ERR was the latest uh, one, and you're always basically loaded with a lot of frameworks and, and theory and really trying to systematize and understand what's happening in this transition in mobility and like, giving words to everything. But maybe before we dive into that, I would like to talk a bit, bit more in, in general about how innovation is happening with the clients that you are working with. You are helping traditional mobility companies to grow new business models, you said. And how do these automotive companies innovate? And how has that also changed maybe in the last years? So OEMs have always been a driver for innovation. If you look at the German cars, they are famous for their engineering quality, but also for their uh, technology advancements. So all the OEMs are very good in technologically driven innovation. Now, with the advent of all kinds of digital services and digital technologies, many of the OEMs realize that actually they also need to innovate in the way how they do business and move from selling vehicles to dealers to providing services to the end consumer. Now, this requires fundamentally new capabilities in the way of 
how a business model is developed because it's not only engineering and technology driven, but it's also much more focused on actually what customers is driving in a, in a daily basis. It's very much driven about designing a digital service experience. It's driven about understanding how a customer is using the service, understanding, getting feedback from the customers and understanding how to translate that into the next improvement of your, of your service. So many of the OEMs experimented with different ways on how to best do that, right? So some of them simply deployed a new team, put together a new team, but have had it run in the existing structures along the existing development processes. And here they quickly realized that the new way of, of bringing new ideas to life doesn't work in the traditional metrics. Yeah? One very specific example is around the calculation of the business case, where in the traditional world, you would expect a very clear forecast over the next 10 years on a very specific price point with, a, with an error margin of maximum 10% on how your revenues would develop over the next 10 years. And you can do that if you're in a, in a mature market with a proven product category like a car. Of course, if you move into the mass mobility market, you have a much bigger degree of uncertainty. So lots of these teams then, when they were internally pitching for, for investments to get the ideas out in the market, didn't get through the, the final CFO approvals because their KPIs and metrics would not address the requirements of the traditional controlling teams. And so the, mm. the, the company started to experiment with new types of innovation concepts or so setting up labs, all kinds even of separate units, and giving them more a freedom to operate like, like actually a venture capital team or a complete new company. And what we observed then was that, yes, there were some teams who had great ideas, but then their lack of actually leveraging the synergies back to the core business. Yeah, because if you now start a new service, there might be some, some capabilities which you want to use from your traditional uh, mother company, uh, be it either in the back-end processes or in the payment processes and HR and so on, but also partly in the, in the technology or in the legal. But because these units were now set up in a, in a different campus with a different brand, where all the, you know, the, the, the cool people would work, it was like a defense reaction from, from the traditional court and the traditional teams. So some of these new ventures also failed because they could not really leverage the synergies back to the core. And what we see now is that many of the traditional companies try more a portfolio approach. And that's what I personally also believe is the right approach, where you say, well, for some ideas, it does make sense to give them the complete freedom and have them operating externally under a new brand. And for others, you keep them closer to your core and try to embed it with, with your existing teams. Maybe have a rotation program that employees switch back and forth between the different units to give them incentives to work closer together to ultimately leverage the, the synergies you have with your traditional company. So interesting. So you're describing how your clients or a part of your clients, the automotive companies, used to always be strong innovators of technology, but maybe not so much of business models. And that mm -hmm. uh, now with new mobility forms, yeah, try different types of innovation concepts, but 
and including giving a lot of independence and maybe creating separate brands and in separate locations and so on. But sometimes that failed because there were no synergies back to the core. And so you think you're saying now the most successful companies probably have a portfolio approach of how they can deal with innovation depending on what's appropriate for the um, specific case, either closer to the core or part of the core or more separate. What a role does also M&A play in that? Because it seems like in some other industries, maybe in pharma, but also in the tech industry, there's potentially a lot more M&A activities where also um, it's, it's common for Intel, for example, that team members leave and start a company and then Intel buys them again and then they leave again. And some people do this three or five times, but they basically just let that happen externally and observe and then acquire once appropriate. Is that something that that your clients are also doing more of or not really so much yet? I, I would say we are entering a, a second wave here. There were like five years ago, seven years ago, the, the first hype of, of shared mobility where every OEM would invest in one or the other form in that new service concept by either buying shares of startups in that space and, and investing, buying some of the equity or even fully acquiring them. Now, as the growth of these companies was not as quickly as expected, uh, while at the same time investment need would raise, some of the OEMs or even also suppliers get, get cold feet and uh, they pulled back their investments or did not participate in the next rounds. Now, with the advent of a, a more mature market in, in, in mobility services, where no the picture becomes a bit clearer in, in which direction, for example, automated driving and, and, and shared mobility is going. Traditional players are re-evaluating their bets. And I mean, if you look at the, the recent acquisition, for example, from, from Volkswagen of Europecar, you could say, well, actually, this is a, a well-thought-through acquisition because it, it helps, now in this specific case, the OEM, to add a capability where they are very sure that they need this capability in the long run. And therefore, they take this brave step to actually acquire that company. In other areas where it's not yet so clear how the business model will play out, I do believe that at this point, it's more a, a venturing approach and they keep just a share of the startups uh, to further observe. But maybe in five years, that will change and they need to acquire or want to acquire them completely. You're also publishing with your colleagues an annual report on the, it's called Digital Auto Report. And what I find interesting there um, is that you're always contrasting like a European, a North American, and then Chinese perspective. I wonder if for this topic of innovation and how do traditional automotive companies innovate, it, it could also make sense to have kind of a regional differentiation like that. Would that, those statements you made probably have mostly European focus that look very differently if you think about American or then Chinese OEMs? Or do you think that's uh, yeah, more or less absolutely. the same what every big company does? Uh, no, I mean, I would say indeed uh, in, in the US and, and when we discuss with American clients or also our US team, it's interesting to see that the, the American OEMs still seem to be a bit more reluctant in taking really bold investment decisions. And that's partly because they observe that the transition to, to new types of mobility actually in the U.S. is slower than in other territories. And that's driven by the, the sheer setup and demand dynamics of the market, where owning a vehicle 
at a fairly low price per gallon at the one side. And then on the other side, the use case where you have a very uh, scattered out uh, topography where people would drive an, an hour from their, from their outskirts, uh, suburbs into, into their places where they work, where sharing concepts are just by definition more challenging to realize. They basically don't see yet this pressure to immediately and drastically uh, build up new capabilities by, by acquisition. So my observation would be, uh, indeed, the, the U.S. is somewhat more relaxed if you look at the traditional OEMs in that space. And on the other side, if you look towards China, well, of course, there are lots of these companies are much younger anyhow, right? So for them, it's, it's an Eldorado and a new market. Anyhow, so many of the players, there are not so many, you know, like traditional players, right? So if you look at Neo and the other brands there who are driving into the market, they are not older than five to 15 years themselves. And at this point where they're all well-funded and believe that they have a strong team and capabilities in-house, they don't need the need to, to acquire other companies. But I could imagine at some point, the market will consolidate. At some point, capital will be retained or will be more scarce also in China. And then there will be a market consolidation where the bigger players will acquire the smaller ones. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about the definition of smart mobility, as you call it. Traditionally, um, a lot of folks have used the acronym of CASE to describe what's happening in mobility. Now, I think Daimler strategy team came up with that originally in kind of summarizing different trends that also influence each other but are happening at the same time where vehicles are connected, autonomous, and shared and then electrified. And you basically have a framework where you say, let's not call it shared, let's call it not shared mobility, but smart mobility. Why do you prefer to use that word and what all is included in that? Yeah. So for us, we want to give with that term a different nuance in that in that new mobility ecosystem where we believe that data and connectivity will be a key driver for providing new types of mobility. And we are saying it's not so much only about you know, providing one vehicle where you simply change the state or the mode of ownership, but it's much more about providing a system of multiple transport modes, which are seamlessly interconnected, which only in the combination of each other provide a true alternative to car ownership. And you will only be able to provide that alternative at a sufficient quality level and experience level if the services are, are connected. And you only achieve that by enabling organizations to use data from different sources, from different companies who are involved in providing that offering. And also, if you have the, the right hardware and technology available in the vehicles, in the cars, to actually capture the data and then transfer it to uh, whoever is providing the service in that space. So smart mobility is somehow more convenient, more appropriate mobility, provided more efficiently with the help of well, technology that, that basically um, uses data um, in a way. Is that Absolutely. like summing it up? Yeah. Absolutely. And if you look at this from this angle, then also the spectrum of value pools gets broader. 
because it's not so much only focused anymore on actually delivering mobility from A to B and then sizing the value pool by total kilometers driven multiplied with a price point. But it's much about more about also what are the different you know, subsectors, um, you could call it data and technology suppliers underneath it who enable that new service. Yeah, totally. I think you are painting a picture. Unfortunately, now it's all audio, so we can't show it. But you've painted a picture where you describe elements of smart mobility, but then you put it into a larger context of yeah, also other industries or verticals getting um, smart, like um, smart health, um, smart waste, smart agriculture and all of that. And I find that very interesting because in different industries, there's an invasion of technology and like a usage of data happening that also gives rise to new value pools, like you said, or business models. And we, for example, ourselves also drawing analogies to what's happening, for example, in energy. And there are companies emerging to provide basically the backend for new energy providers that are having to deal with more data and need to automate their services. And then there are software companies emerging for that. And we're basically trying to be something similar than in mobility. But I find that very interesting to look at transitions that are happening in different industries and see all of that will also happen here. From a consumer perspective, you just mentioned the transition from basically committing on a vehicle, buying a product to using a service. Uh, what happens in terms of value pool creation? Why does that unlock more value necessarily? Because would anybody spend more money or where do these value pools emerge? It's a very good question. So, I mean, ultimately, the if you look from a very global top down on, on the mobility markets, there are two revenue sources. One is the consumer spend, and uh, we often refer to the so-called share of wallet, where you would spend a few thousand euros a year on mobility across the different modes. And the second source is the uh, public spending, uh, public funding for, on the one side, the infrastructure, and then also the, the public uh, transport operators. Now, in total, as population grows and demand for mobility grows, the, mo the, the market, of course, overall is growing just because we have a higher demand overall on, on, on mobility. So total demand um, is increasing uh, of mobility, and that drives total growth of the value pools. Now, the, the interesting part here, if you zoom in a bit more into the Western world, into Europe or and the US, is, of course, of how are these value pools distributed across the different modes of transport? And that's where it gets now interesting and where we also see there's some, some growth potential. Now, we believe that when operators or also startups push in with new attractive services like, like ride-hailing or car-sharing, at a price point, which is at, at some point more attractive than, than owning a car, people, of course, will use that service. So we do see that the, the spend from a, from a household perspective might stay constant, but it is shifting now from spending the money for our own vehicle to a more flexible mode. And uh, in, that, in that space where we now do see some growth, the big question is who will, who What type of players will capture that? Will that be the, the Ubers and the, the mobility service providers 
who have the brand in the market and who provide basically the booking and, 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 and payment experience uh, through an app? Or will that be rather the B2B operators in the back who run and operate the fleets or who provide the technology that the fleet is operating? That's already outlining kind of on a very high level the value chain. <laughs> and of course, the yeah. interesting question, how value puts are distributed. You have a, it's a pretty granular understanding of the shared mobility value chain. And when we say shared mobility, I, can, I guess we could differentiate between vehicle sharing and also ride hailing. But let's talk primarily about ride hailing and uh, with an eye to eventually autonomous uh, ride hailing for now. How would you divide this value chain? What are the important parts beyond the vehicle manufacturer, the tech provider, the operator? If you go one level more granular, who do you see there as a category of players? Yeah, I mean, starting with the, with the consumer side in the front end, Course, you have on the one side the, the mobility service providers provide under their own brand their service, like I said, like in like in Uber or a, a free now. Or you do have the, the aggregator platforms who more act as a as a marketplace and try to, to bundle the different types of services. And you have these these aggregator platforms sometimes also as a city-specific solution, like you'll be in Berlin or uh, Mass Global. And, and WIM in, in Finland. On the next step, you do have then the, the, the fleet operators, and they, in, in some occasions, can be the same players, but they can also outsource the, the fleet operations to, to, to other providers. Uh, if you look, for example, at, at, at Berlkönig in, in Berlin, where then VIA is actually operating the fleet behind it. And then if you zoom into the next steps in terms of vehicle development, also here, Sometimes the same player is also actually developing the, the vehicle. Yeah, if you look at, at Moya, for example, at least where Moya in-house then from Volkswagen is also developing and sourcing the vehicle. And on the other side, you do see the players who provide the, the others kit, the virtual driver, where uh, currently the, a lot of innovation is happening, driven, of course, on the one side by the US, but also some players in Europe are trying to, to take a step there. And then ultimately, in the next step, you go, if you zoom into the infrastructure, here you move closer to the traditional, more public-funded spaces, like also the roads and, and, and parking spaces, but also the whole traffic management and, and lighting system and so on. And um, across, across these sectors, we do see very different margin potentials. And what, what we found interesting, the just in the, in the latest analysis of the digital auto report also is that a lot of the players want to focus on a, on a high margin product in a, in a software space or the tech space, which scales easily or relatively easily across countries, while only a very few wants to get their hands, their hands dirty in the, in the actual fleet operations business. But if you, if you look at how much revenues go in fleet operations, it's far more than when we stacked up a different different way that the different value puts, um, but it's it's basically more than thirty percent which goes into the fleet operations, and um, it's just a very relevant share of the overall mobility provisioning. And uh, we do believe if you manage to do this in a very good and efficient way, you have actually a much higher lever to gain value or capture value than in in some of the other value pools like 
the booking engine. That's very interesting. Um, you are basically hearing from clients that there's an, there's an interest to also get into the scalable, presumably higher margin software business and probably want to be the yeah, mobility service provider. But then on the other hand, most of the spend, more than 30%, you said, is in the fleet provisioning. And there's also kind of an additional pressure on the mobility service providers from the aggregators, sometimes even like a publicly funded or city mandated um, aggregator, I think more and more in the future. And with that, yeah, it's, it's unclear how, what's actually the best positioning in the value chain or should it go across several areas? Like some players are now go, going across um, multiple stages. This, is everybody yeah. just going more broadly right now or are people taking very also opposing strategies that they are really betting on very different models? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the pitch decks uh, from, from, from startups in, the, in that space, as I said, I think their, their story is, is very much about a very specific and clear opposition to start with, which is tech-driven and scalable. But then once they are a few years down the road in the market, they realize they only get the traction behind their technology if they own also to some degree uh, the fleet operations or even um, participate in tenders to provide a mobility service in a specific uh, in a specific unit uh, in a specific city so mm -hmm. um, I, I think at this place they are still in a in a learning phase and um, therefore they are broader in, in covering the value chain also going into the fleet operations up to even providing the ticketing but I think their strategy in the long term is once the product is mature enough once they have reached certain market traction, they will then narrow down again to the most high margin steps in the value chain. And that's actually a trend you can see also in, in other industries. I uh, used to work a bit in the, in the chemical space for, for a few years as a consultant. And, and here you also can see uh, the big chemical players, one of their core capabilities is actually to understand where in a specific market, at a specific point of time, the highest margins are in the different value chain steps. And they're very good and efficient in buying new companies and selling old ones, which are not fitting in this most attractive step of the value chain. And I could envision at some point that also the mobility sector, the players within are developing in such a direction. That's super interesting. So from that perspective, the ability to understand the profit pools in the different parts of the value chain and to change your own business over time, the products, the product portfolio would be important to follow yeah, where the money is basically going in the chain. Yeah, if you want to get the, if you want to become a, a big player, right? I mean, the, I think there's always, or for a longer term in mobility than in other industries, there are niches when you focus on one specific aspect of the navigation in, in, yeah. in the autonomous driving and one specific aspect in, in sensor analytics and so on. But if you want to become a big multinational player, I do believe you need that capability. Yes. You mentioned that, well, there's so much money going into the feed provisioning and that um, you think if that's, let's say, done well, that, that can also be an attractive business. What is making the difference there? So what's driving, from your perspective, from your observations, the success in the more operations-heavy parts of the um, value chain? What makes some players 
run this profitably and others not? Ultimately, it's, it's all about operational excellence driven by, on the one side, a very stringent process discipline and a very KPI-driven way on how to improve the processes. So look at it on a, on a, yeah, from a very quantitative view on, on where you costs go on the one side. And then spend quite some money in, in a strong leadership where you have the division leads or the, uh, the people who are driving or owning specific step in the process are very good in actually getting the people behind to follow that process. So I, if I look, you know, like at the traditional car sharing companies, like a sixth or so, yeah, uh, I do believe those players are very good in, yeah, on the one side, over the decades, they are now in the market, understanding, you know, where every cent in the process is spent on. And on the other side, have a, a very, uh, how would I say, it, uh, empathetic brand, which also spills over to the employer brand with their campaigns and get people behind, you know, following that specific process to ensure that costs uh, are kept at the required minimum. You said in the beginning, your mission now is to help traditional mobility companies grow into these new business models. And then I think one aspect of that is probably identifying what the opportunities are, where they um, could go, but the other is helping them to execute on these um, new ideas. And what role does data play now and how has that also changed? And can you see big differences between, maybe without naming names, but are there currently big differences in new mobility and how people that on the surface level seem to do the same thing are actually using data? Yeah, I mean, there are two aspects to it, right? The, the one is a lot about, you know, can I use data to improve my decision-making and uh, to then also improve the way how I execute on these decisions by understanding the consequences, the impact. Yeah? So if I try to define a certain KPI and then have a good uh, measurement system in-house, which enables me to, to assess that, I can, on a much more granular level and a much more consistent level, execute on it, right? So if it's be it a spend on marketing or cost per, per customer acquired, or be it more than in the in your retention programs, for example. So how much do you spend on, on coupons and, and retaining the customer, depending on the specific customer cohort and so on. So I believe there's lots of things in a big potential, which players already today leverage, if you look at the traditional ones, leverage in a very different way. And um, the other aspect is on, can you actually use data to develop something completely new, provide new services, city planning dashboards as a service, like, for example, Daimler is now starting to do, or can you even sell the data in a certain aggregated and anonymized way to credit scoring institutes and so on? And what I do see is that at this point, all the traditional OEMs, also the suppliers, and also the transport operators in Germany are, are still in an in a experimental mode. They are open, they are setting up new data connected service teams who are data scientists, teams, data labs, AI factories, you name it, to concentrate people who know about these things in one place 
And then they are very open in actually exchanging their ideas with other with other players, also from other industries. And that's something which I feel is new. I think five years ago, they wanted to do that all internally, in-house, don't talk about it until they figured it out. And now, actually, if you go to all these big players, they're very interested in engaging in roundtable discussions and exchanging their lessons learned. And um, at this point, I do see there is some some developments now, some more concern about actually how can we use and leverage the data also across the organizations. And that's why now a few consortia are forming up, like the, the data space mobility here in Germany or Catena X, and uh, where also some private data marketplaces are now taking on the role of an intermediary like Vito, uh, Autonomo, or Caruso. And um, I do believe that these consortia and, and marketplaces are fueling now quite a bit the discussion about how to use data to, for, for growth. But I cannot really say at this point that there is one specific player who is already, you know, by light years better than the others. They are all similar, still in an exploration mode. Oh, very interesting. Thanks a lot. I mean, you described basically how you ended up in consulting to be able to look across different players and the whole industry as it's moving into new business models and how some of your clients have been great innovators of technology in the past, but not so much of um, business models. And then there was a phase of experimentation that has now is now becoming more yeah, structured and using kind of a portfolio approach to innovation and how basically there are different and growing value pools along um, these new emerging values. So shifting, uh, it's an unclear where they might be in a few years and you basically yeah are thinking about analogies from other industries where the best companies are able to anticipate that and then change their product portfolio over time to follow or lead where these value pools will be and how yeah, data will play a role in that but it's also just emerging kind of a phase where we're aggregating talent into whatever it's called, maybe data factories, and then now finally also ready to yeah, openly exchange about how that can be used. But it all sounds very much like still the beginning. And if I look at back to your um, auto report, there's there are some uh, numbers you're doing surveys, like representative services on in the different regions. And you're also asking people to what extent have they used, are they open to using shared mobility? And then you're estimating person kilometers um, as a percentage of total kilometers traveled that will be on you know shared modes and i think your estimate for for europe 2025 is about 13 percent of the total kilometers traveled and in the u.s it's three percent and in, in china about 12 so basically <laughs> still a huge industry from our perspective working in it but from an Outside in um, perspective, just the very beginning, basically, the vast majority of kilometers traveled are on owned vehicles and yeah, sharing is only now emerging. And interestingly, uh, much more so in Europe and China, not in the US. Kind of your statement towards the beginning of potentially differentiation between automotive players in Europe and the US. And I think you said in the US, they are less active with these um, new models. That's for an outsider, somewhat unexpected, I think, where normally... In the past, a lot of innovation in the consumer space was driven in the U.S. In mobility, yeah. um, it seems like 
with the topography and the car focus and so on, shared mobility innovation is mostly really happening in Europe and China. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, there are the, you know, the big stars like, like Tesla and Uber coming from the US, but you need to put that into contrast of the whole American economy. Yeah. And then if you do that, your, your description is absolutely up. Yeah. Thanks a lot for spending the time with us and sharing some of your insights. And let's keep in touch. And thank you for helping us to learn and put everything in place and understand what's happening. Absolutely. It was a true pleasure and uh, looking forward to meeting you at some point again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.